This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I walk this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams. A lot of broken dreams for many Americans 10 years after the financial crisis. Folks, this is a must read today or over the weekend. If you catch our weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, one of our go-to people when you want to know what's going on behind the scenes in the world of politics, Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Business Week. His story, this week's remarks in the magazine. Um, it's entitled How Anger Over the Financial Bailout Gave Us a Trump. Uh, nice to have you here, President Trump, of course. Josh Green, tell us a little bit about your, your story. Take us back to January 2010 and then Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner. Sure. Well, you know, this piece is my look back kind of 10 years after the crisis and what the political effects have been. I mean, we, you know, if you read Bloomberg, if you watch it on TV, let's do it on radio, you know, we, we can all fight the precise economic statistics, but politically, that's something that's been kind of unexplored. And if somebody who covers the intersection of politics and finance, what has always stood out to me in my memory about the politics of the financial crisis was a meeting I had with Tim Geithner in his office back in January of 2010. I was just finishing up a long profile of Geithner, and this was his kind of chance to sum up and make the pitch that Obama, and he had done everything right, and yet Geithner was in a terrible mood, and I asked him, you know, do you think that you're ever going to get credit for this, that Obama is ever going to be, you know, appreciated uh, politically for, for having prevented a second Great Depression, and he said, frankly, no, he didn't, and what Geithner was just then beginning to understand, and this is the point I cover in the piece, is that, well... The economic recovery from the crisis, in terms of the, the headline numbers, has been pretty impressive in the U.S. Um, the political fallout has been dramatic, and I think it's ultimately what led us to Donald Trump as president, and now is driving a lot of this angry populist energy on the left uh, that is giving rise to candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Well, and Josh, you rightly point out that this was this did not skew it necessarily one way or the other. You've had these extremes that have really emerged, as you say, on both sides. One of the things you talk about in, in the piece is that there wasn't, and I believe this was Geithner's phrase, Old Testament justice uh, that was meted out uh, to Wall Street. What are the implications for that? Because as you say, you really, you live at this intersection of, of sort of finance and, and, and politics. What are the implications of that not happening? Well, you know, that, that, that is a great and I think the all-important question. Um, so Obama and Geithner's approach to the crisis, right, they, they, they took office in January of 2009 with the economy plummeting, jobs hemorrhaging everywhere, was they decided the most important thing to do is to restore growth at all costs. That's best for the country, it's best for the economy, and it'll keep the, the, the taxpayer tab down on having to pay for the financial crisis. Um, that ended up working fairly well from an economic standpoint, but it entailed taking a light touch with bankers. Uh, you know, there was a famous moment that spring where Obama summoned a bunch of big Wall Street CEOs to the White House and it said, you know, they thought they were going to get a tongue lashing. Instead, he said, you know, I'm the only thing standing between you guys and the pitchfork. So Obama was consciously willing to protect 
bankers from public wrath because he thought that was what needed to be done for the economy to recover. What I say in, in, in my piece is that I think that there was a terrible political price to pay for that, that um, while he might have made the right moves economically, from a kind of a, a moral justice standpoint, a lot of Americans were rightfully galled at the fact that they lost their jobs or their homes, their retirement accounts. You know, other while while big Wall Street banks were, were were bailed out, that didn't sit right with a lot of people, and it helped give rise to anger you've seen on the left with Occupy Wall Street, on the right with the Tea Party. You know, it ultimately led to I think a frustration with political leaders in both parties that led to the rise of Donald Trump. Well, and I thought what was interesting too, you said that kind of as things came back, as the market came back, you wrote. You know, that it was a reminder that the financial overclass responsible for the crisis not only got off scot-free, but was getting richer in the process, while many other folks, the man on Main Street, was still maybe, you know, hadn't even gotten the job that they had, hadn't gotten their investment. You know, it was just such a, a, a separation between the haves and have-nots that continued and even got greater. Exactly. And that was what was so interesting about this meeting with Geithner. So I started following him in the fall of 2009 and, and kind of embedded with him on and off. And our last meeting in January occurred, um, you know, when, when the economy had turned around, you know, a bull market had begun that's still going on to this day. Uh, and yet Obama's poll numbers were in the gutter. You know, Bank uh, Geithner was this despised figure, not just by Republicans, but by a lot of Democrats. And what he was just then beginning to understand was the gauge of economic revitalization that he and Obama had focused on. Things like GDP growth and the rising stock market weren't yeah. being viewed by, by, by a broad segment of American workers as a positive. It was a reminder that the people who caused the prices so, so not jo- only got off, but were doing yeah. really well. So, Josh, I guess what I wonder now, we just got about 40 seconds, the lasting impact politically. You know, so here we got a candidate like Donald Trump. What does this mean come the next round of elections? Well, Trump got elected because he, I think, symbolized this you know, rank-and-file, blue-collar American anger. But if you look at what he's done as president, it's been good for the financial class, not great for workers. So I think that anger shifts into the Democratic uh, column. Populist, liberal candidates campaigning against Wall Street, and that would be my bet to be, you know, who emerges from the Democratic field in 2020. Great stuff. Josh Green, always a pleasure to talk with you. As Carol said, this is a Mm must-read. The remarks... Uh, right at the beginning of Bloomberg Business Week uh, this week. It, I'm glad he mentioned Elizabeth Warren, Carol, because that is who's in my mind, because this could come back. This sort of yeah. justice being uh, being played out uh, on Wall Street could come in the form of Elizabeth Warren. It, it's worrisome, I think, to a lot of people that we talk to in financial services. Tune into Bloomberg Business Week. Myself, Jason Kelly, tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And you can also watch Bloomberg Business Week Saturday at 12 noon Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV. And, of course, go online, check out the magazine, do it all, everybody. This is Bloomberg. Okay, there, that's a song I've never heard. Um, Surprise. Leave it it to Paul Brennan (laughs) to find some sort of slash metal about scooters. But, you know, that's a talent. Uh, Joshua Brewstein, he wrote a story that I really love uh, in Bloomberg Business Week this week. He's joining us from our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. And it's basically about Uber getting into the scooter game, Carol, the scooter and the bike game. Uh, So, Joshua, tell us what's going on, because you got, shall we say, a little bit of a a peek, as it were, uh, at what's happening with Uber and the scooters. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. So Uber has been sort of moving towards scooters for the last couple of months. In April, it bought a bike sharing company called Jump. And um, what I found out was that Uber is actually now building a scooter. The, um, the folks at Jump are in charge of this project and they haven't announced it yet. Um, but they're working on um, on their own scooter, which they would then use to compete with these other scooter sharing networks that have been popping out um, around American cities and, and European cities over the last couple of months. Joshua, they are pretty secretive about it. I mean, you actually had to do an interview right in the parking lot. They wouldn't actually let you into the offices. <laughs> yeah, so I, I paid a visit to... Um, the place where Uber works on its sort of advanced technologies, the flying cars, the self-driving cars. And I was there to interview one of the guys who works at Jump. And um, it was so hard to get past security that finally he said, you know what, I'll just come outside and we'll stand there in in the parking lot and talk. And that was actually kind of good because then he had a bike and I could look at it and and we were able to do it that way. But yeah, they're, they're pretty tight over there. And, and Joshua, let's talk about sort of the, this notion that scooters themselves have not been without controversy, especially out in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, where it seems like almost everything's a controversy when it comes to, you know, <laughs> the, you know the latest and greatest things. Uh, why, why has this become such a, such a big issue? What's controversial about scooters? Yeah, Why do people hate scooters? What's been interesting <laughs> is the controversies actually had some echoes of the controversy over the rollout of, of Uber and Lyft ride-hailing services. But so basically what happened was um, late last year and, and early this year, in a handful of cities, these scooter-sharing networks just showed up and basically put a bunch of scooters around town. And you, could, um, you can unlock them with a the smartphone app, you ride them around, when you're done, you just leave them there. Um, people left them in inconvenient places. People rode on the sidewalk, which is illegal. Um, they were seen as a nuisance in many neighborhoods. And because the companies hadn't talked to the cities really before doing this, there was this question of, is this the latest sort of outlaw tech that's going to cause a problem in our cities? Now, interestingly, Uber and Lyft, who are both interested in scooters, did not participate in this sort of guerrilla launch. Right. They've been playing the uh, the conservative sort of veterans, let's talk to the cities and figure it out first, which is sort of a shift for them. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things we talked about when we were uh, taping an interview for our weekend show coming up this weekend, yes. uh, Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Television and Radio, is this idea that this feels more like the Dara Uber than the Travis Uber, right? The new CEO uh, taking a more, as you say, conservative approach, maybe a little more cooperative approach as they roll out this product versus the early days of Uber. Yeah, this has been a very carefully cultivated tone, um, and it does reflect Dar's leadership. But it also reflects the fact that while ride hailing was something that maybe you could get away with doing within this legal gray area, in most places there's already laws on the books about um, about being able to put scooters or bikes yeah. on the street. And also, if you have a scooter sharing network and you put the scooters out on the streets, the city can come around and confiscate them. So if the city doesn't want them there, you're really not going to be able to do it. Well, here's a wah-wah-wah to this story. Sorry, I didn't do that that well. But you have some (laughs) updates. Okay, thank you. But updates later uh, this week, um, because there were some big contracts, I guess, being considered, right, from San San Francisco and I think Santa Monica. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So San Francisco and Santa Monica were both early places where these scooters were rolled out without um, without permits. And, and what the city said was, you know, we're going to let these things in. People want them. But you're going to have to get a permit to um, to operate. And so both cities held application processes. And obviously San Francisco, it's a bellwether. People really wanted to get in there. And both Uber and Lyft, um, as well as the two most prominent scooter startups, uh, they're called Bird and Lime, none of them got permits. Hmm. Um, For Bird and Lime, it seemed almost certainly because they launched early without permission. For Uber and Lyft, it was a little bit less clear. Um, But the fact is that all of those companies, um, you know, were being excluded from, you know, for tech, maybe the most important city in the country. Now, in Santa Monica, those four companies all did get um, contracts. Or not, they're not contracts, they're just permits. Um, but what was interesting is uh, the staff recommendations were actually to keep Bird and Lime um, out of the city. Uh, it was unclear, but maybe because they had also, again, gone out without permission. Um, but the director yeah. overturned that, saying, hmm. we don't want Uber and Lyft to dominate the scooter business in the, in the, um, in the city. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Well, how important is something like a scooter business, to be quite honest, to Uber? Or is this part of a bigger, broader strategy, uh, Joshua? Well, right now, it's it's financially not very important. that they're, they're, um, they're not making, I mean, right now they're making no revenue because they haven't launched yet. But it, yeah. it's going to be quite some time before this pans out, if it does. But Uber is seeing that in urban areas, um, cars aren't always the best way to get around. There's interest in other types of and other types of transportation. And if someone's going to win this business, Uber and Lyft want to make sure that they have a good chance of being the ones to win it. Wow. So interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens from here as well. Joshua Brewstein, we know you will be keeping an eye on it for us. He is, of course, technology writer for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from our Bloomberg 1130 studio there in New York. And as we mentioned shamelessly earlier, you can watch more about this story this weekend on Bloomberg Television and listen in on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Bloomberg Radio Show uh, debuts tonight at 6, Wall Street time. Uh, the TV show comes on at noon tomorrow and plays throughout the weekend. So many chances to catch it, Carol. <laughs> yeah, Bloomberg Business Week all so the time. I did want to bring in yes, one story that just came across the, the Twitter feed. The Village Voice closing after 63 years of publishing. For anybody who's come up in the journalism business, especially if you've uh, worked in and around New York, uh, you know, I, I feel like I overuse the word iconic, but this is an iconic brand. I mean, really helped mm-hmm. launch a certain uh, class of journalism. It was something that uh, many people, uh, you know, imitated in many ways. I worked for a newspaper, a college newspaper, yeah. the Georgetown Voice. We, we really borrowed a lot from the ethos of this. People and, wanted to go to work there. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you, you got a journalism degree or, or, you know, and this is where you went, uh, you know, one of the places you sought after for a job. And they've been, I guess, over a year, they stopped the print edition. They've been online, gone digital, which is what we've seen from a lot of uh, publications and media outlets. But I guess it just wasn't enough. It was not enough, apparently. And, and look, this is a big existential uh, moment for the print journalism business, especially, you know, newspapers in, in and around New York. You know, such a, a massive media market uh, experiencing some really tough times. The Daily News uh, cutting half of its staff, you know, now rumors uh, that it may be bought uh, yet again. So we'll see what goes from there. But, you know, the, the passing of an institution in, in a lot of yeah, ways for uh, journalists, not just in New York, but but well beyond. All right, everybody. You are listening to Bloomberg uh, Business Week on this Friday afternoon. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly, live 
from the U.S. Open in Flushing, Queens. More tennis, more market news. This is Bloomberg. So this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal. Is it number one? Number one in the last eight hours. Unbelievable. And that's what happens when you put the words Apple, Oracle, dump. $300 $300 billion into a title. Well, that's what happens when you have one of the smartest reporters on the planet sitting across that from you too. at the U.S. Open, Carol. How did you do that? Number one story, and then you're at the Open? It's been a pretty good day. She's oh a baller. God. That's what it is. <laughs> Molly Smith is Bloomberg News finance reporter. She is here at the U.S. Open, and I guess she's a tennis fan. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But tell us about your story. What's going on? Yeah, well, like you said, Apple, Oracle, dump, $300 billion in the headline. <laughs> uh, that's a good start to what's happening here. So we've seen... A lot of what this was uh, pretty expected from when we heard about the repatriation aspect of the tax reform that uh, companies like Apple, like Oracle, Microsoft, with these massive overseas cash balances uh, would now have a lesser one-time tax to bring those overseas profits back home. And that's resulted now in companies that used to be buying $25 billion of bonds a quarter to now selling $50 billion of bonds every quarter. And that's where we get this $300 billion annual figure, and it's creating that hole in the corporate bond market. And so what are the implications of this? You know, for investors listening, you know, how does this sort of play through? And is there something people should do about it? What should they be aware of? Well, it's certainly been most evident in the front end of the uh, yield curve in the Uh, corporate bond market. So we're talking about mm -hmm. maturities in less than five years where a lot of these companies were investing their profits to most closely match cash. So those yields have gone up dramatically in the front end of the curve, making short-term borrowing much more expensive. And that, in addition to the Fed hikes, has really driven up those front-end yields much faster than those in the back end of the curve. So issuers, as a result, instead of borrowing maybe five years and in, are looking more to seven years and out. Right, because the rates are lower. In the back end. So basically you're talking about the money that was parked overseas was were invested in those short-term in- instruments. And now that that money's coming back, they're not obviously having to do it. They're not having to buy those instruments. They're selling them. Right. So the idea was that if, you know, I was Apple and, you know, before the tax tax reform, like um, the income tax that you would have had a hit to bringing back overseas profits, a lot of those companies instead were just parking this cash in corporate bonds. So now... Overseas. Well, in U.S. corporate bonds. Okay, got it. But they were profits from overseas. So. So that's where this money has been stationed for the large part in the U.S. corporate bond market. But now um, to basically what a lot of them are doing is not only rolling off those maturities and not reinvesting in new bonds, but they're also actively selling their holdings. How much of that have we already seen? How much is yet to come? So according to um, Bureau of Economic Analysis data, we've already seen more than $300 billion through the first quarter of the year. Is that Uh, a lot? Yeah, that's a re- that was a record quarter. <laughs> okay, uh, that's a lot more than we've seen so far. And I don't know so, trillion yeah. dollar market cap companies. I'm trying to put everything. I like right. when you no, talk to one of the lot. expert bond reports. She's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, well, sometimes no, it's size and scope. It, like it's I'm, I certainly don't have anywhere well, close to 300 billion. But that's a lot of money. It but is. like, how much more could be yet to come? And some are expecting as much as 700 billion for the year, oh, okay. even more than that, possibly just given how fast the first quarter of the year was. So. Right. Right. We really could just be getting started. Wow. And ultimately, this is going to drive up the cost of debt for companies, right? I mean, that's one of the things mm-hmm. that, that people worry about, at least in the short term. Right? right. And that's what, at least for now, that this isn't such a massive concern among the people who I talk to that, you know, if the recession 
the one that is looming out there somewhere, somewhere. is much more imminent. If it were, this would be much more of a concern. But right now, the economy is doing really well. Corporate earnings still very strong, and that's really offsetting this incremental rise in borrowing costs right now. All right. Can we talk some tennis? Heck yeah. <laughs> so what are you he seeing here? He was asking me, Molly. <laughs> well, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm asking everyone. I'm Carol, asking everyone around the table. Oh, yes, I want to talk tennis. Okay. So <laughs> She looks like a tennis player. Molly, you are, you're clearly there. a fan. We were talking about the fact that <laughs> Venus and Serena coming up later tonight, the earliest you, they've played each other since the 90s. So interesting. Yeah, and I'm kind of slapping myself now for not getting a night session yeah. ticket. But if who would have known? known? Who would have known? This is not something you're used to seeing in the the first five days of the U.S. Open. It's like astonishing. So what are you seeing out here? We've, we've had a couple of USTA folks on with us yeah. over the last day or so, um, you know, talking about sort of the changes to the campus, the new uh, Armstrong Stadium. What's jumping out to you this year? Uh, well, really want to make a shout out to the heat index rule, which thank goodness <laughs> that that was implemented for the men earlier this week. And we're not, we're not feeling that today. It's pretty overcast, comfortable. I've got a sweater on today. today. It's a little yeah. chilly. Right. But that was, I don't think it's you al- did it's two days ago. It's always something with Carol. It's too hot. It's too cold. You know. It was crazy I mean, we have a snuggie in the wor- studio. We're cold in there. <laughs> See, she knows. But this is, uh, I mean, when the men were out there playing, like, yeah. the mid to high 90s. And, like, thank goodness, you know, they now you can get a 10-minute break between the third and fourth sets. And I'm not sure why that that wasn't a thing before. The women yeah. have yeah. always had it. Yeah. Between the second and third. I, th- I have a feeling it'll be a thing going forward. Molly Smith, we're going to let you get back to the tennis yes. corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. On site with us here at the U.S. Open. Next year, U.S. Open, number one story in the Bloomberg. That, no pressure. It's just, but just expected yeah. every day of the Open. Okay. You got it. Every day of the Open. I'm there. We need a big story. <laughs> All right. Great to be with you. Get back to the tennis. Yes. Quick headline, Argentina may be cut by S&P. No surprise. Those emerging markets. Yeah. But anyway, just wanted to mention it. Yeah. So uh, a lot coming up uh, for you here. We are live at the U.S. Open. Carol Master and Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Roger Federer, you're getting better every time I see you play. Roger Federer, that's what I said I can't say that I've ever heard that song, and uh, I do love rhyming Federer with Betterer. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I will say, Carol, there is some amazing sports writing that's done yeah. about tennis. I mean, I don't know what it is mm-hmm. about the sport, about the players, about the fans that uh, sort of inspires such great writing, but we're so fortunate to have one of those writers here, Richard Kent. He's the author of Federer Nadal, among uh, other books about sports and about tennis. Richard, great to have you here with us at the U.S. Open. Great to be on. I appreciate it. So what is the Federer story right now? Here in 2018, he looks great. He's had an amazing uh, 2018 so far. Where is he at this moment? I think there's two stories. There's the R story, which is the retirement, which is asked of them at literally every press conference. He's committed to the Labor Cup, which takes place annually in September in Geneva in September of 2019. So I think we're good to go through then. And my hunch is he plays in the Olympics in 2020. The second story, actually, is a question that I asked him that I'm kind of proud of yesterday at his press conference. I said, Roger, who wins? Roger Federer 2008 versus Roger Federer 2018. Huh. And he gave it some thought. He did not have a quick answer, but he said, I'm pretty certain that I win today. I think it would be a tough match, but I am smarter. I have a better serve. 
and I think I know my opponents better. This, go ahead. So what does that tell you about the state of tennis? How much of that is about tennis, and how much of it is about Roger Federer, the player? Well, I should also say that he punctuated his remarks by saying that the younger generation coming up right now, 2018, was stronger than the younger generation coming up in 2008. But that doesn't speak to the issue of personality. Yes, right. I think there's going to be a serious issue with men's tennis when Federer and Federer and Nadal will probably go out at about the same time. Djokovic will probably still be around for two years or so. And Andy Murray, I don't know if he'll ever recuperate fully from his injury. And another issue as we sit here, obviously, is will an American emerge? Right, right. And what do you think, especially on the, on the last point, the American? I don't see an American right now in the pipeline. I mean, I had my hopes for Ryan Harrison. I had my hopes years ago for John Isner and Sam Querrey. Uh, I just I don't see it happening. Now, on the women's side, we just saw Sloane Stevens in the stadium win. Of course, she's the defending champion. She played Madison Keys, another woman. And tonight, the epic. Yeah. Serena versus Venus, first time ever in the third round of any major. So what are you looking forward to in that matchup, and what are your expectations? Well, Roger Federer will not win that match. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a smart man. That, that much I will tell you. Um, I think it's going to be a very close match. I certainly gave the edge in the past five or so matches to Serena. Serena took a year off, had the maternity leave. Uh, has had the baby. Had the baby. <laughs> Olympia, we all know Olympia. I forgot yeah. my own kids' names, by the way. But we, know, we know Olympia's name. And uh, You're giving the edge to Venus this year? I'm not giving the edge. I'm going to call it relatively even. Yeah. And what else are you seeing here? I mean, you're a student of the game, obviously, and a student of this tournament. You live up in Connecticut, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what have you seen about this tournament that, that's new and different, either physically or just in, in the vibe this year? Well, Armstrong blows my mind. Yeah. i got to tell you that. I mean, when I walked in there during practice day, and I looked around. I mean, I'm not an architect by training. I do know some architects who had seen it, and they were just dazzled by it. Just like they're dazzled by the grandstand, which is over to our right right here, which mm-hmm. you, if you drive to the open, yeah. you pass it on your left. Yeah. And, and from the outside, it's just incredible. Yeah. Well, what, what specifically, though, about Armstrong? I mean, Jason and I went and watched a match to, uh, earlier today, um, and it, it kind of has an intimate feel. It kind of has an intimate feel. Right? Right. Is that what you're blown away by? Yeah, because it's it's 15,000 seats. Yeah. I mean, I haven't sat in all 15,000. <laughs> I mean, our seat was great. Yeah, it was great. The, the sight lines are beautiful. Yeah. It feels new, but it also feels very much of the place. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I, I think of the place in sight lines are the uh, key words here. I mean, I did try to sit in some what you would call crummy seats. Yeah. And they weren't crummy, i got to yeah. tell you that. What an amazing place to, to watch a tournament. You are we're fortunate to have watched it uh, over all these many years. Looking forward uh, to your next writing, especially on Roger Federer uh, and, as you say, the big questions around what's next uh, for him. That's Richard Kent. He is the author of Federer and Nadal, among other books. We're going to let him get back to watching some tennis. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive. 
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. Quick headline we want to mention, though, crossing the Bloomberg. Uh, the United States uh, Trade uh, Representative saying that the president uh, to sign a trade deal with Mexico and Canada, if willing. Also that uh, we did say a little bit earlier that uh, U.S., Canada, NAFTA talk said to end without a deal, but to resume next week. We are anticipating uh, a press conference with the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada, Krista Freeland, uh, from the embassy at about 4.30 p.m. Wall Street time. So we'll get a little bit of an update. But again, trade front and center and sounds like it will continue into next week. And in that same statement, Carol, uh, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, is saying that Canada trade talks were constructive and felt like they made progress. So what Mm -hmm. it sounds like we're hearing from the United States trade representative is this notion that the president still open to effectively a trilateral deal, which is what NAFTA was, and not limiting uh, the scope to just bilateral agreements with Mexico and Canada uh, independently. So we'll see where that goes. And as you say, we're going to hear in the next hour from Christia Freeland, who is negotiating on behalf of of the Canadians. Uh, Let's bring in Kevin Kelly. He is strategy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Mr. Kelly, nice to be with you. Nice to be with you guys, too. And so what do you make of this week? Obviously, trade has weighed a bit uh, on the markets or at least market chatter. Uh, How much did that play through the, the actual markets from your and especially the equity markets from your perspective? Yeah, so it's really interesting if you look back, I mean, not only this week, but really since the market bottomed in, a, in March and, and a couple months ago, um, you wouldn't even expect that there's a ton of you know, trade rhetoric or turbulence um, kind of underlying all of that. You know, you have the S&P 500 breaking out, closing last week, last Friday, an all-time high, and continue to make new highs this week, even though they're a little bit off the last couple of days, uh, just below 2,900. Um, but what's interesting there is you, you continue to see this divergence between the S&P 500, again, U.S. equities, um, and what's going on internationally, especially yeah. when it comes to emerging markets. So, that divergence yeah. is amazing. I mean, it really feels like if, if I had to pin one story on this market over the last couple of weeks, it, it's that divergence. And uh, so what does that mean? As someone who's looked at the markets for a while, Kevin, what does that mean and where does it go from here? What does it indicate, if anything? Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of the story is the dollar. Recent dollar strength, when you look at uh, emerging market equities, um, compared to the dollar, the correlation is strongly negative, right? So as the dollar rises, EM typically tends to underperform, um, which we're seeing this year, and the dollar continues to rally higher. One of the things we actually looked at was at what point, um, this week we looked at what point where will the EM equity kind of weakness potentially spill over into the U.S. equity market, because again, this divergence is very notable, and people are asking, how long can this last? And there's a couple, you know, main kind of pillars, you could say, um, or key themes that we're looking for, one of which, um, two of which actually go hand in hand, the dollar and oil. So if you continue to see an acceleration in the dollar um, and a a precipitous drop in oil prices, historically, when we look back over the last, you know, two cycles or so, that has been a a leading indicator um, of emerging market weakness kind of bleeding over into the U.S. equity market. The other part is... When you look at how emerging markets are um, constructed today, if you look at, for example, the MSCI uh, Emerging Market Index, mm-hmm. a lot of that is China, right? It's, it's over 25% China um, compared to just 15% even five years ago. So China stocks, and we've seen Chinese stocks you know, still down over 20% from their, their recent highs in, uh, in late January. You know, That's a big theme here as well. China's a huge part of this story. Um, and 
So the dollar, oil, and this rollover in Chinese stocks, those are kind of the three pillars we're looking for. So if we see the first two um, kind of come to fruition, that's when we would get a little bit worried about, about this contagion potentially spilling over to but us. But keep a watch on oil, bottom line. Yes, absolutely. And what do you expect to see there? I mean, hmm. that's a that's a fascinating piece of this for me, at least. You know, what... What are you on the lookout for with oil specifically as sort of the levers or, or the drivers? Yeah, so it, a lot of it, I think, too, depends on oil, the oil price dynamics between supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if, if a lot of times, or at least in the past, you're able to look at oil, and if oil prices were declining, it potentially could be um, um, a indicator of global growth or global demand slowing down, right? So if that's the case and you start to see a slowdown in emerging markets or foreign markets that obviously would not play well for a lot of the internationally um, focused uh, U.S. Uh, equities. Um, the other thing that we're looking for, again, as I mentioned, the dollar, typically those, the dollar and oil move inversely yeah. with each other. Um, the dollar, as you, as you continue to see this divergence in, uh, in global central bank policy, um, that could certainly continue to, to, to push the dollar higher here. Even though long term, there are a number of structural things that uh, potentially could, could bring the dollar back, back down to uh, to earth here. You know, Kevin, in any market, you can find an opportunity. I was thinking about the conversation with Warren Buffett this week, and I think he was, you know, still obviously a value guy, <laughs> a long-term investor. Um, and might it just be a case that valuations will come at some point down, at least on the equity side of things, come down to a much more uh, attractive place? Uh, and that's another way you bring a different group of investors back to the marketplace. 100%. And what's really interesting is if you look at uh, the forward price to earnings ratio on the S&P 500 as an example, to your point, um, you're back, not only are stocks back to their all-time highs, but the actual valuation multiples um, are down almost 10% from their highs in late December, right? So you now have a market that is back to where it was, but it's a little bit leaner in terms of the, uh, the valuation multiples that have been oftentimes um, quoted by some of the bears as one of their primary reasons why you know stocks may be limited in terms of their appreciation from here. All righty. Kevin Kelly, strategy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from our Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, in New York. I'll say it so Carol doesn't have to. It's nice to talk to a Kelly who actually knows what the heck he's talking about. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.